Home is where the heart is. And now, the office and the school and the shops and the concerts too. On this Inside Intercom mini-series, we're exploring what that means for various facets of life and how people are managing to persevere with the help of technology. Today's episode is the first of four and we're focusing on health, wellness and mindfulness. Looking at how yoga teachers are facilitating online classes, how a fitness management platform has pivoted to support their customers, what a neuroscientist has to say about the impact on mental health and hearing how one SaaS company has moved fast to support health workers on the front line. Today we hear from Patrick Fitzgerald, Sales Director at Glowfox, Dr. Christian Race, Neuroscientist and Head of Mindfulness at Solvasa. Nat Kendall, a San Francisco-based yoga teacher and musician, Amir Salihi Fendich, CEO at Duist, and Manoj Versani, CEO and founder at usehammock.com and the brains behind SOS Supplies. There's lots to cover, so let's dive in and hear from our guests. What do you do when your traditional business model dissolves before your very eyes? For so many, this has been the situation that's unfolded over the last month or two. Some, though, are being very quick to return to the drawing board and find new ways of working and delivering services to their customers. In the health and wellness space, gyms and instructors are amongst those hardest hit by the physical limitations of a post-COVID-19 world. And they've been some of the most inventive in finding points of connection. Patrick Fitzgerald of Glowfox describes how they've addressed the problem. Glowfox is a fitness management platform. So we work with boutique fitness businesses across the globe, helping them better manage their business and grow and uh, engage their membership and, um, you know, really, really set up the kind of businesses that many of us love going to. So we've been up and running for about five years. We're, we're live in around 50 countries around the world, working with thousands of gyms, both big and small across all those different places. And we've got offices across Sydney, Dublin, and the US as well. So a uh, pretty global business from day one and backed by some of the world's top VCs too. So um, yeah, we've, we've been having a pretty exciting time these last few years and continuing to do that through this uh, new period. One thing that occurs to me when you mentioned that your clients are predominantly gyms there, obviously the circumstances that we're, we're all facing at the moment and, and various countries and you being a global company, of course, but various countries being in lockdown, presumably that covers gyms almost across the board. So you've obviously had to adapt your business model to what's going on. How have you gone about that? It's been a short period of pretty substantial change. There's no question about that. So we, because we're this global business, we get to see, we've got to see the wave of change roll in across different jurisdictions. And so perhaps the first market we saw affected was probably Singapore and uh, then mm-hmm. into Hong Kong. And then things started to trickle into Western Europe before kind of accelerating into Australia and New Zealand. And now we're beginning to see it you know, have a bigger impact across the US over the last couple of weeks as well. And so for our clients, it has been you know pretty traumatic experience for many of them. The gov- governments in their local jurisdictions have closed their businesses and they have suddenly moved from being very much a an experience, an in-person experience-driven business to one that needs to adapt to fully digital experience. 
Um, and so we're seeing some people adapt really, really well to that. And, and you know, really happy to talk through some of the detail there. Would love that. But one thing I'm curious about in what you said there, you saw it as it was kind of almost a tsunami kind of rolling towards you guys in terms of you were seeing it happen in different jurisdictions. Were you then kind of taking learnings from clients in one part of the world and using that to kind of shore up how you were working with clients who were only seeing it come down the line? Absolutely. So we, we sit on this pretty rich database, which allows us to see what attendance data looks like, what revenue data looks like across all of our customers. And so we can see then, you know, who is, who is continuing to perform well, notwithstanding the changes that they've seen in their business. And then with those signals, we dive into what they are doing so that we can try and identify what best practice is and so that we can then prepare our customers for the coming wave, as you say, better arm them for managing this new situation. Um, because we think, you know, it's going to be critical to change your business model today. And we think that your business model in the future is likely to be changed as well. So the ability to balance this kind of, you know, this really personalized, amazing in-person experience that so many of our customers do such a good job of delivering with a digital parallel, right? So your, whether it's your on-demand content or your live streaming classes, uh, being able to manage those two things in parallel is going to be absolutely fundamental for our customer base in the future. And so we're trying to educate them as, uh, as the world kind of changes uh, country by country. So what we have seen among our customers has been incredibly interesting. We probably saw like this kind of step-by-step emotional response from people where the first response was one of panic, where people saw the world change, didn't know what to do, and felt that the, the best immediate response was to make all of their content available for free. Because mm. we all know Joe Wicks, he makes his content available for free, and that seems to have worked out pretty well for him. But of course, what, what, what that kind of conclusion really failed to understand was that the success of our customers has been driven by their ability to create really personal connections with their customers, to create that loyalty through experience and through accountability, and through focus and attention and dedication, not by offering things for free. And so what we saw among the customers very quickly was that those that were doing well were the ones who were doubling down on what was already working for them. And delivering that through a digital channel rather than an in-person one. So maintaining their class bookings, maintaining their membership fees, reducing the number of attendances in a, in a, in a fitness class rather than increasing it, which is the temptation. You know, Google Hangouts have a new little nudge I, I noticed yesterday on the calendar invite, which says we, we hold up to 250 attendees at a time. In our world, in the world of fitness, that's the last thing that you want most of the time. You don't want 250 people on the other side of the screen, you want six people that you can provide really dedicated attention to. So we saw that kind of initial panic. And then we saw people reposition and take stock and, and see what was working and reposition quite quickly. And I guess the, the, the third wave we're seeing now is people really t- recognizing that they may have a little bit more time to kind of take stock and think about the business that they want to build into the future. This business that's going to be this hybrid of in-person and online, we believe and investing their time and their energy and making sure that they're using the right tools to enable that and, and also just preparing themselves as individuals to deliver against this, uh, this 
new future world we're expecting. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned Joe Wicks there because I think people might not realise on the face of it that as a celebrity fitness trainer, he has a completely different revenue model to your ordinary fitness trainer. His revenue model is probably based on appearances and on sponsorship and what people get part of the buy-in there is that loads of people are watching at the same time. Exactly right. The, the key thing is that celebrity piece, right? There's a magnetism among people that have been executing that model well and successfully through this new period. So, you know, Joe's been getting an enormous amount of free publicity through great stuff that he's doing. You know, like we have a huge amount of respect and time for what he's doing. We think he's uh, like a great guy and, and running great business and, and really investing in, in the community that he's built and the things that he cares about. So I think what he's doing is fantastic. The, the temptation for other people is to think, well, that looks easy. I can do that as well. What, what I think Joe does a really good job of is presenting what feels really authentic and homespun, but actually there's a massive team working behind him to, to really you know, construct that image and, and make sure it remains engaging with low kind of entry barrier, but also super professionally delivered. And it's really hard to achieve that. So rather than trying to like overnight convert your business model and become a content generating machine, to compete with the likes of Joe Wicks, much better, we think, to double down on what your strengths have been. The, you know, the community aspect that you've been able to build, the loyalty that you've generated, the, the dedication you've created, the, the accountability that you, that you encourage among your community. And if you can do those things well, then you don't need to worry too much about Joe Wicks. Joe's, Joe's going to keep doing what he does really well, but you should keep doing what you've done really well separately. It definitely makes sense to play to your strengths when faced with a challenge like the present. What of the people teaching these classes, though? We wanted to hear how they're getting on. So we chatted to Nat Kendall, who's a yoga teacher based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Nat counts himself lucky to have been able to continue teaching this past while. I feel very, very fortunate to be able to adapt to what is happening. Actually, I was in the grocery store yesterday and the woman checking us out said, oh, what are you guys doing? Are you out of work right now? And my partner and I were there and we both kind of smiled at each other and said, we're really fortunate. We're still able to offer most of our classes online. So we've gone virtual with the offerings. And of course, we can't do the retreats in person. We can't do these special classes and music gatherings. But yeah, we're still able to offer the teachings of yoga online and it's actually been quite fun and it just feels like a new space to explore. And I've personally been enjoying it and finding that there is still a potency to practicing online in a global yoga sangha. And do you think, you know, for a lot of people, it's something that they actually need a bit more of at the moment? Oh my God. I mean, people are reaching out left and right, just saying, thank you so much for offering this. You have no idea how much solace this is bringing me in this time. And, you know, there may be people that are in their apartment and don't have anybody nearby that they can connect with and they have this practice and they can finally invite the practice into their home and find a way to stay healthy, focused, find a way to stay open and not closed off to fear. And I think this is profound for people right now. I think they're really starting to finally feel the effects of yoga and what it can do. That's wonderful. And 
What's been the biggest challenge for you then in being able to pivot and set this up the way that you have? I think one of the bigger challenges is not having the tangible feedback of being in person in the studio with people and literally like being able to see rib cages expand and contract with the breath and hear the audible sound of breath just kind of washing through the room. And as a teacher, you know, I'm here in our little private yoga studio and I'm filming just by myself and broadcasting it out. And I don't have any of that tactile kind of feedback coming in to tell me, oh, okay, this is a moment where I could slow things down. So I have to be much more attentive to my own practice and try and just use the insight that I have from teaching public classes to fall back on and remind myself, okay, pay attention. Think about the breath. Think about the duration. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges right now. Presumably that means that you've got, you know, people signing up who've never done yoga before. Surely that's difficult to teach, you know, to someone who doesn't have any experience whatsoever, that you can't have that physical in the same room interaction with them. How are you getting past that? Yeah, I mean, this is such a good point. And for me, it's one of the bigger points of yoga and trying to tap into this kind of online or audio realm is that initially yoga was taught in person. You know, there was this transfer of information and wisdom that was given in a tangible form, person to person. And so now I'm, you know, I'm looking on the screen and we're doing these via Zoom so I can see a lot of people and I can see how they're kind of looking around to try and see what somebody else is doing to try and get insight from a little image on a computer. And, uh, Yeah, I think that is one of the shortcomings, but what I'm doing to adapt to that is slow things down deliberately much more than normal. And it's honestly, it's making me a better teacher because I have to really pay attention to my cueing, to my words, to my language, and make sure that it's landing. And I'm also practicing along to try and give a visual cue for those that are maybe new to it. The only thing is that I don't want to create the imposition of them thinking, oh, it needs to look like that. You know, like it needs to be some glamorous representation of the pose. I still want there to be the freedom for people to explore what it is for them. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of different things to work through in this new medium, but I think we're getting there. Is it easier for people to pick up on the kind of more meditative side of it, do you think, because they're actually in a room by themselves, despite the fact that, you know, there's stuff going on on screen? Yeah, totally. I I think there is that opportunity for perhaps, yes, more of a meditative experience because they may have minimized distractions. And then there's also this idea that, well, if you're staring at your computer and your phone's nearby, how much access do you have to a distraction? So I've been really clear at the beginning of classes, hey, set your phone aside, turn it over so you can't see it, open up big screen on your computer, just the practice, and that's all we're going to focus on for 90 minutes. And I think that helps set people up a bit more for success so that they can perhaps drop in and minimize distractions that may have been there in a public studio. And there's also this um, maybe reduction of inhibition because they're not right next to somebody that may have been practicing for years. 
And so they may feel a little more comfort in their own home to just be in their practice. And I've been hearing from people that that is the case. This time and space with minimized distractions certainly isn't something everyone is experiencing, especially those with a full house of kids at home. But what Nat describes isn't something only he is seeing. Dr. Kristen Race is a neuroscientist who, as head of mindfulness at Sylvana, has spent the last 12 years studying the adverse effects of our busy modern lives on the health of our brains and bodies. Let's hear about her background. Well, I've been in the field of neuroscience and mindfulness for about 15 years. My work actually started because I was really concerned about epidemic of stress and how it was impacting children. So I started my work in schools and working with teachers, training them on how to integrate mindfulness into the school day, both for students' resilience and for teacher self-care as well. And fast forward, that program really blew up and spread first nationwide, then worldwide. And as that was happening, I wrote a parenting book called Mindful Parenting, because one of the things I realized was this generation of stressed out children was being raised by stressed out parents. And so I started giving a book tour around mindful parenting and how parents can build resilience to modern day stress. That book tour led to a lot of corporate inquiries on how I could help corporations build resilience to modern day stressors using brain-based mindfulness tools. And it all just evolved somewhat organically. I call myself an entrepreneur by accident. And then when COVID hit around a month ago, my speaking engagement started to get canceled and I started to wonder what was going to happen to my business and, and to my income, just like so many people all over the world. And it was actually my 16-year-old daughter that said, mom, all of this mindfulness stuff could be really helpful to people right now. And I said, you know what? You're right. And so we've really pivoted in the last month or so to provide online resources, webinars, information on my Instagram page, kind of anything I can to help people use mindfulness and brain science to build resilience, to increase happiness, to increase productivity, and to really just improve their health and well-being as we all try to navigate this. Amazing. And I think I love that the initial spark of inspiration came from your daughter. And, you know, I guess in some respects, the initial spark of inspiration when you wrote about mindful parenting to begin with probably came from her as well. You're right. You're right. Kristen started out looking to help folks cope with stressful and busy lives. But it struck me that now life as we knew it is on pause. Surely that changes her message. It's a really interesting question. You would think given how much everything has changed that there would be a big shift in my message as well. But in reality, it is not all that different. You know, our if you think about the last several weeks, your brain has likely been vacillated between two brain states. One would be what I would call the smart state, driven by our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that is responsible for things like attention, impulse control, problem solving, forward thinking, positive emotions. 
And then the other state is called the alarm state. And that is driven by the amygdala. It's our fight, flight, or freeze response. And when we're in that state, we tend to feel reactive, anxious, worried, irritable, overwhelmed, and we have difficulty sleeping at night. Now, in my previous pre-COVID work, people found themselves in this alarm state all the time just because of the busy, chaotic, 24-hour accessibility, hectic world we were all living in. So they weren't life-threatening stressors, but our brain actually interprets stress in the same way, regardless of whether it's life-threatening or not. So I talk to people a lot about how to calm that alarm response and how to stay in the smart state or remain to keep your prefrontal cortex accessible. Well, now in COVID, we may not be running around and have these hectic lives, but we still have all of these things every day triggering the stress response, the alarm centers in our brain. So just all of the uncertainty of our, our current situation for our businesses, for our communities, for our health, all of the constant news updates around the increase in cases, uh, what the curve is doing, the financial implications, all of these things also trigger that alarm state in your brain. So my work is really around helping people use brain-strengthening mindfulness practices in very simple ways to stimulate that smart state, that prefrontal cortex, and to keep them as engaged in the smart state as possible so they can make good decisions, they can think as positively as they can, they can be present with what's going on in their lives, stay focused, all those essential skills that are so important for our health and well-being. So that's kind of a long-winded explanation, but to summarize, the reality is the practices are the same. They're more essential and relevant now than they've ever been, but it's all about staying in that smart state as much as we can so we can be as resilient as possible given the circumstances that we're in. I love it. And it's such an important message. And it makes sense, actually, that the although the circumstances are changing, the instincts, those human instincts remain the same throughout. Yeah. The physiology yeah. of our brain is the same. And our, our brain doesn't distinguish between those life-threatening situations and our worries and our anxiety. So we have to be really intentional about what we do and how we focus our attention and where we land our attention so that we can stay in the, in the right mindset and the right brain state as much as possible. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. 
old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Being in the right headspace and having the ability to focus is ultimately so important at the moment. In many respects, those of us who are used to a busy office culture are probably most at sea when it comes to finding our way. A lot of companies, Intercom included, are doing a lot internally to help employees navigate these times. A smaller cohort of companies already had fully distributed teams. And so they're trying to help industry peers and customers by sharing what they know. Doist is one of these. Here's their CEO and founder, Amir. I mean, something that helps a lot, and I think a lot of other organizations can learn, is kind of like to try to limit synchronous communication. So this means like meetings and real-time chat and like move more over to asynchronous. So especially like if you have kids, like you can't really be in a meeting all day long. Like, and I have like heard like our, our Brenna, our head of marketing, like her neighbor spends like uh, over five hours per day in meetings and they have like two kids. Wow. So, and I think this is kind of the reality of most organizations right now. It's kind of, they are, you know, adapting to this situation by just like requiring people to be online all the time and like to be in meetings all the time. And this is actually the wrong way to tackle this, at least from our standpoint. So for us, actually like having the ability to to be asynchronous and like to work, for instance, like right now, I kind of work a bit in the morning, uh, more in the, in, in the day, and then uh, late at night, I, I start to work again. So like in an asynchronous like culture, you can kind of like, you know, work whenever it fits best and not like really be defined to like a work hours. And I think this is super helpful in the current environment. And Amir, one thing I'm curious uh, that I think that people can learn from your team is that actually fostering a sense of a team and having that sort of social interaction between people is so, so important to people's health and their general well-being in a workplace. How do you go about that when a team is remote and maybe communicating asynchronously? Yeah, I mean, honestly, like I think this is one of the biggest challenges of remote work and asynchronous first organizations. It's kind of like the mental issues that are associated with this. Um, It's not really like that you can, I think actually like if you want to do the best work in the world, I think this will be done by asynchronous teams in the future because they will just be able to solve much harder problems. But the mental and people side, you know, is much more problematic. So uh, I have like written a blog post about this called like just focus on like the mental issues 
And, you know, it's not like all piña coladas on the beach and like this is the most amazing <laughs> way of, of working together. Like there's some, you know, compromises and the compromises is kind of like the loneliness aspect that, you know, we as humans are not really wired towards this environment. And that's why I think also like people prefer to be in meetings all day, even if it's like less efficient and like uh, more problematic. It's basically like, you know, we just like to be with other persons and like having conversations and speaking. So uh, how do we solve this? I, you know, I think like we are still kind of figuring this out. Um, and I don't think this kind of like this is a very, very new form of working together, like asynchronous first organization, like fully distributed companies that have maybe like 50 or more employees are very few in the world. There's probably like a handful, you know, so this is like a very, very edgy thing. And we don't really know all the implications of this. Uh, but something that's like very critical is kind of like the routines of people. So for instance, that, you know, you still kind of attend your friends, that you still kind of get out, that you kind of have like healthy habits. For instance, that you, you know, like if you like that, you work from a co-working space. And in Duist, we kind of like pay for co-working spaces for people. We also pay for like their sports activities or like gym memberships and stuff like that. And I think like for for a person that works in this environment, you kind of like need to design your life and you need to be like much more, you know, careful how you do that because you can easily end up with some like really bad patterns and these patterns can become very destructive. So for instance, like you're not going out, you know, you can work all the time. So you're basically like stuck inside your home working all the time and maybe, you know, you will create some great results. But if you do this for months, you know, you'll basically have a depression or something like that because, you know, humans are just not wired to to work in an environment like that. Something that I think is very important to know is like most people, especially like in Duist, they are actually very good to designing their lives to make them happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like our employee retention and employee retention for a lot of these like fully distributed company is like out of the charts. Like I think most of these like GitLab, Buffer, Duist, Basecamp, like our employee retention is like over 90%. So almost like nobody leaves. Uh, and this is like over five years. And if you look at a, like a normal tech company, you know, it's probably like in 30% or, or less, you know, it's uh, it's much, much uh, yeah. uh, less. Um, so, so people like really appreciate, I think the freedom this gives them. But if you're not like really careful about how you design your life, it can really like, you know, create some really bad habits and basically be very destructive. Amir makes a great point in needing to be a little more calculated about how you structure your day and your life when it's all happening between the same four walls. Seeing as we had Dr. Race on the line, it seemed like a good opportunity to get some actionable tips from her on how to do just that. There is a lot that is beyond our control right now. So a key piece to staying in that smart state, that prefrontal cortex, is to focus on what you can control. One of the things that I'm very focused on right now is my morning routine and ritual. I wake up before the rest of the family. It may be the only piece of my day that I really have control over right now. And we have two choices. Well, we have many choices, but most people do one of two things when they wake up in the morning. Uh, you might wake up to the alarm on your smartphone, immediately dive into those red badges, texts, email notifications, the day's headlines. When we do that, 
right away, we are triggering the alarm response in our brain. So we're putting ourselves instantly in that agitated, anxious fight or flight state, often before our feet have even hit the ground in the morning. The other option when you wake up in the morning, maybe to an old fashioned alarm, is to do something to stimulate your prefrontal cortex right off the bat. So for me, that's a three to five minute mindfulness meditation. I don't think you have to sit on a cushion for 20 minutes, but just a few minutes. I do this while my coffee brews to stimulate my prefrontal cortex really sets the tone for my day. It puts me in a brain state where I can be productive. I can be patient. I can uh, monitor my attention and And it just creates, it sets the tone for a healthy and productive day rather than starting off right away, triggering those alarm states and those survival mechanisms. So that's one key thing that people can can start with. These are some small and simple changes that people can use at the moment. But not everything that's happening will be righted by a small and simple change. One person who is acutely aware of this is Manoj Varsani. When crisis struck, he brought his entire team at usehammock.com on board to help in the most extraordinary way by devoting their skills and talents to helping health workers on the front line. SOSsupplies.com is a platform which matches up charities and hospitals who need PPE with suppliers who have them in stock in the UK. And the reason we came up with this idea was because I'm a chairman for a charity called Hara Carers. And about four weeks ago, my CEO called me to say they ran out of PPE. The impact of that actually means our care support workers can't go out to actually look after our vulnerable people. So effectively, they administer medication, do the shopping for them, they clean the house for them. And, you know, they play a really important role uh, with vulnerable people. And as a result of that, they weren't able to attend uh, their sessions. So I spent the whole of the morning sourcing PPE. So I stopped working for Hammock. I went, actually, this is a big problem. I spent the whole morning sourcing PPE. And I realized there's a big problem here. Like a lot of organizations are profiteering from the situation. And also a lot of organizations don't have PPE in stock. Luckily, we managed to source them and got them out the same day and the next day. And that's when it hit me, this must be a national problem. I then spoke to uh, my team and said, look, I've got an idea. This is what's happened to my local charity. It must be a national problem. How about we set up a platform over the weekend and see what happens? And we did exactly that. We built the platform over the weekend. And within 48 hours, we had our first orders of PPE. We don't make any money from this. We simply match supplies with organizations. And fast forward four weeks, we now got over 100 charities and hospitals who use our platform now to source urgent PPE. That's amazing. And how many distributors do you have now? So we have, we recommend roughly around 12 suppliers and distributors that we have in total is about 160. Wow, that's gone up so much even since last week when I saw your original press release. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, And it's one of our mandates for the distributors is they must have stock in the UK. 
And the reason that's important is because typically the charities and hospitals who sign up to our website, they sign up at the point where they have run out of PPE. So yeah. they're typically exhausted all the different options they've had previously, such as the existing suppliers, the councils, um, the government, the NHS, and they've got nowhere else to turn to. So we are literally, in some cases, the last line of defence for them. My gosh. And you're only sourcing fair price distributors. Am I right in saying that? Yes, exactly. So we try to get the cheapest suppliers available with the best quality products. Uh, So anyone that's profiteering, we don't advertise them on our platform. Amazing. So, so needed at the moment. But like your distributors aren't necessarily the type of people that you would necessarily think to go to. Like you guys have been quite agile in the types of places that you're approaching. You've got gin distilleries, dentists, as well as recognized pharmaceutical companies. Am I right in saying that? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So our suppliers, um, some of them have pivoted their business and turned their fashion industry into making gowns, for example, or pivoted their their plastic manufacturing to make uh, disposable aprons, for example, and visors. So a lot of our suppliers, uh, you know, 20% of them have pivoted their business into going into this area. Um, The rest of them have specialized in PPE for a long time. And then as well as the work that you're doing in linking these people up, you're also doing some fundraising. Yes. So nine out of 10 uh, organizations can actually afford to buy the PPE. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those 10% who can't, uh, we do a, a small fundraiser for them where we can buy the PPE. Um, we successfully launched a, a fundraiser two weeks ago, which is now closed and fully funded. Uh, with that donation, we've shipped out 50,000 pieces of PPE with that. So with that success, we started to open, we've now done a, another fundraiser to help even more charities now. That's incredible. We'll be sure to link to the details of where people can donate on the blog page. So tell me about the types of organizations that you are helping around the country. Yep, sure. So the the types of organizations completely vary. Um, So we've got hospitals, NHS hospitals that use us. We've got GP surgeries. We've got CCGs, which is where they look after a group of surgeries as well. We've got charities. Uh, such as Sue Ryder, uh, we've got the NSPCC, we've got hospices uh, such as Mary Curie, uh, we've also got local hospices, and we've got loads of small charities who deal with domestic abuse and refuges for women and children as well. Uh, so it completely varies. And I noticed, managed that, you know, you said that it was the team in Hammock that got behind this. How much time or people or resources are you having to give over to SOS Supplies at the moment? Uh, it's important to add here that uh, usehammock.com did start this initiative and sure. we are all still involved in it. Um, but to take this further and make this bigger, we started recruiting volunteers and we've had some fantastic volunteers come through who've made a big difference and made SOS Supplies much bigger than what it is today. Um, so without these volunteers and without my team, we will not be able to achieve what we have to date so far. In terms of time, we do long hours effectively. So we are working during the day on Use Hammock, and we also squeeze in an hour there, half an hour there for SOS supplies. And then in the evenings, we have a 6 p.m. stand-up uh, where we work in the evenings to do dedicate more time with SOS supplies. That's amazing. So how many people within are within Use Hammock that are, are working on this, or is it the entire team? It's the entire team. 
And tell me, what was the feedback like from your staff when you said that this is what you wanted to do? They all jumped at it. They, they were really excited. They understood the problem. And, you know, this was four weeks ago before PPE became really big uh, and a massive problem nationally. And at the time, I remember talking to the team about uh, the problem that I think is going to happen. And the team were just like, it sounds, you know, let's just do this and see how it goes over the weekend. And then it just exploded from there. And just to add to that, SOS supplies, the volunteering work we do has helped the team so much in terms of the motivation. And there's so much negative news out there mm. around coronavirus and so much anxiety builds up. Uh, and even within my own team and myself, you know, before we started this project, we had a lot of anxiety around coronavirus. Um, now that we're giving back so much to the community, kind of ignore all of the negative press around that. We just focus on positives. I think it's helped us all mentally with our well-being. And the tech that you've built, the tech behind this, is it something that you can see, you know, a, a long-term future for, or perhaps something that you might be able to launch in different regions? That's a very good question. I think the tech behind the due diligence process that we do with the suppliers uh, definitely can be reused, even by the government and by other charities and other countries out there that need to do something like this. So we've actually nailed the, the due diligence process of sourcing suppliers and we have a workflow stream with, which they go through the steps to become certified and verified. Uh, that piece of the tech and the knowledge that we have around that is you know, it's definitely reusable and, and we can go out there. We wanted to know what else from this time would be recycled in the future when hopefully there's a return to a more normal way of life. Everyone we chatted to felt that there had been a lot of learnings. For Patrick and Glowfox, this has accelerated a revolution that was already underway. We, we definitely will. There is no doubt in our minds that the some of the changes and some of the success stories that have taken place in the fitness industry in advance of Corona, things like Peloton, for instance, they may, may have kind of helped people recognize how good a, an at-home experience could be. And what we've now seen through this period is a rapid adoption across almost every business in our industry of the need to execute in that way as well. We, we still don't think there's any substitute for the experience, the community and the accountability that, that, that arises from being in studio with your fellow classmates, directly with your trainer. But we do think it is unquestionable that, that this online piece is going to remain a, a consistent part of our customers' business going forward. So yeah, we are absolutely committed to supporting that kind of unified view of the fitness world, um, which is pretty exciting, really. For others, the revolution is a more quiet one and a lot closer to home. Learning the importance of taking stock emotionally, as well as with an eye on the revenue, is one lesson that usehammock.com sound like they'll be keeping with them. Here's Manoj again. I think the biggest takeaways from this for, for my team will be like, don't take anything for granted, really, because the people that we're helping are working so hard. And it's, it is quite scary for them to go out there and do this work without any PPE. So I think the emotional element of that, or, you know, we are in a very fortunate position as a company that we've just recently closed around as well. There's many startups out there that don't have, that are looking to fundraise now and they're going to really struggle. 
Um, so there's so many elements of what's happened over the past four weeks that we can relate to and not take for granted. And, you know, one of those things is definitely we've managed to close around and we're very fortunate in that we have stable jobs. We don't have to furlough any staff. And in terms of SOS supplies, uh, hearing the stories and the impact we have on the lives of the charities and hospitals, it's, you know, it's very nice, you know, it's heartwarming to hear that. And I think after all of this is over, um, I think our team will want to continue doing charitable work after this. An inspiring story from an organisation who've jumped headfirst into the health and wellness space of late. But who better to finish up our first episode of Home than a yogi? Here's Nat with a message of positivity. We have an amazing opportunity at hand and we get to decide how we want to come out the other side of this COVID situation. You know, do we want to shrink back into fear, uncertainty and worry? Or do we want to take this amazing time that's been granted to us to do things like you mentioned, these contemplative moments, these moments of not only strengthening and toning the body, but also working in meditation with the mind and the emotions, the heart? Like, how do we want to nurture and care for ourselves in this time? And I think we're all finding a lot of amazing resources to help fortify who it is that we want to be so that we can come out the other side shining and radiant instead of defeated and deflated. And that gives me so much hope to see. We hope you enjoyed episode one of Home, a special four-part series on Inside Intercom that will explore how folks are adapting their approaches to health and wellness, socializing, business and entertainment in our current circumstances. We'll be back next week with episode two, Off the Clock. We hope you'll join us.